Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Pastor Steve Wilkins entitled, The Protestant Exodus to America. Listen to more from Pastor Wilkins now on Canon Plus. Yes, let's talk about the Protestant exodus to America. Um, the Protestant migration in the 17th and 18th centuries is one of the more remarkable events in the history of the world. It, it, you cannot understand this country if you don't know about this movement. And you, I hope you're seeing how everything is connected. Doug was talking about our people, our tribes. Uh, and, and even if you're not directly descended from some of these people, I hope you can at least appreciate and realize, you know, every one of us has connections back to Adam and Eve. And that this is important to see this continuity. It's important to see that history is a stream. And that um, it's not just a bunch of little puddles that you're plopped down into, you know, when you're born. That you, you're part of a covenant history. And this uh, this exodus, this migration, is an amazing thing. In its initial stages, and indeed throughout the period, the vast majority of those settlers who came to this country were from Great Britain. And that was true in spite of the fact, remember, that Spain and France had far larger land holdings and both governments sought settlers vigorously in the 17th century. And yet, even in spite of their, um, in spite of their vigorous seeking of people to try to come and colonize, they had very little success in finding a, a whole lot of people to come to this country and settle. Now, by contrast, the English people who did not get seriously involved in exploration until a hundred years after Columbus would, by 1700, have more English settlements in North America than both Spain and France combined. Now, what explains that remarkable fact? That's the question. And the answer lies, I think, as in most cases, in theology, and in this case, in the theology of the Reformation. Great Britain was more thoroughly affected by the Reformation than any other country in Europe. The Reformation, uh, as we, as uh, Doug just laid out for us, I think, very, very well. It restored, it, it brought back many of the great things of the historic faith. And it's, it's, it stirred within men this desire to glorify God again in everything, in every area of life. Men desired to see the earth full of his glory as they saw Christ is truly king. We don't, we're not just pretending that he's king, or we're not just going to act like he's king. He is really now set down at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all people, all over all nations. He is the prince or the ruler of the governors of the earth. That was a reality to these people, a palpable reality that they couldn't get away from. Well, the Reformation then restored this biblical view of the world that in some ways had been uh, obscured. But they, they reasoned this way, since God is sovereign, the world is not the enemy, but the stage of his, the outworking of his purposes. And man is placed here to labor by the grace of God to build, to, to develop and structure the world and life and everything so that it brings glory to him, so that the curse of sin can be rolled back and the blessings of God take its place. It was this, uh, it, it again became the understanding of men during this time that all of life is important, all callings. No, uh, not just the ministry or the priesthood, but every area of life. Now it was understood again 
that you could be a servant of God in, in your own calling, because all work is honorable and glorious. And this, once again, restored a biblical view of the church and the state, as well as of, of men themselves. It was this preeminently which led to a rise of the Puritan movement and the struggles within the established church in England. And this also gave rise to this desire to go to a new land where these principles might be applied without hindrance. And so as a result, as Cotton Mather said, it was as if God had served a summons on the people of the British Isles to come to America. He wrote this, The God of heaven served, as it were, a summons upon the spirits of his people in the English nation, stirring up the spirits of thousands which never saw the faces of each other with a most unanimous inclination to leave all the pleasant accommodations of their native country and to go over a terrible ocean into a more terrible desert for the pure enjoyment of his ordinances. Now, it was this view which dominated among those who first uh, came into this land. The way I want to cover this is to cover the first three uh, migrations, first three sets of Puritans to come into the country, and then look at the broad, uh, look at a broad overview of the great migrations, or the three of the great migrations that occurred in the 17th and 18th centuries. The first uh, of these early migrations of Puritans in the 17th centuries was, was of course, the Jamestown Puritans. Now, I hope uh, that doesn't sound too strange to you. Most history books, if I say Puritan, you think New England. And if I say Jamestown, you think, oh, yeah, that's, that's well, yeah, that happened. But, that you know, America didn't really start until they landed in on that barren piece of coal rock up in New England. <laughs> but, in fact, it started in the south in Virginia. Not to boast, but there it is. In the spring of 1606, King James of England granted a charter to the Virginia Company, which gave the company rights to settle and explore and govern Virginia. Now, remember, Virginia was a strip of land 240 miles wide, extending from the southern boundary of what is now called Maryland all the way to Cape Fear, North Carolina. So you have this huge piece of land called Virginia. Now, the Virginia Company was composed of two particular groups, the London Group and the Plymouth Group. The London group wanted to settle in the southern part of this uh, of this country of Virginia, and the Plymouth group planned to go into the northern part of that uh, part of that piece of land. Well, both groups, as soon as they had their charter, they they got on the stick and got everything ready. Both of them were racing to be the first ones over here. And the Plymouth group actually set out first in 1606, and they settled in the mouth of the Kennebec River in modern Maine, a little bit north of where they were supposed to be. Now, this settlement, close, but, you know, uh, a lot closer than I could have gotten, I can tell you. But anyway, they, they were way up in Maine, and the settlement only lasted a winter uh, because of poor crops and because of death among the people, and, and they uh, went back to England. On December the 20th, 1606, the London group sent an expedition out of about 104 men. They sailed from London on three ships, the Godspeed, the Discovery and the Susan Constant, under the command of Captain Christopher Newport. They landed on the peninsula of Virginia, uh, peninsula of the James, uh, about 30 miles up the James River in, uh, in, on May the 14th, 1607. They were instructed uh, before they left to choose a site for the settlement with great care, making certain that the location was healthful and easily defended. Uh, and they ignored both of those things and they settled in this low, swampy piece of ground. 
And as a result of that, for the first eight months, the colonists were decimated by disease and famine. And then, of course, the Indians uh, came and hurt them as well. And and not to mention, one of the most devastating things was this the, the idea of trying to live in a communist way, a communal way, which encouraged laziness and discouraged diligence as it has throughout the history of the world. So uh, when a supply ship uh, arrived in January of 1608, only 38 of the original 105 settlers were alive. The loss of life in this uh, early settlement of Jamestown is, uh, for the first two decades of its existence, almost defies imagination. Uh, there were 7,289 colonists to come in the first 20 years. 6,040 of them died. Uh, six people died for every one that lived. By the spring of 1610, the few colonists who remained decided that it was a good effort and uh, noble and all the rest, but let's go home. And so they got on the ship and started back to England. A few miles down the river, however, they met the, another supply ship from the new governor, Thomas West, also uh, given the title Lord Delaware. And they were commanded to, uh, when he saw what was happening, he said, where are you going? They said, back to England. Said, no, you're not. Said, Take a right and go over to the shore there. We're going back to the place, and so he sent them all back, and and as a result, the the colony survived. Sir Thomas Dale became the governor and established strict military discipline. The colony still struggled; it was in a in a very bad way. And the only thing that that upheld this colony was their their trust in God. One of the um, reports, of, a poetical paraphrase, really, of a report from Thomas Dale was published in a London paper about this time, and this is what it read. Be not, dismayed, be not dismayed at all, for scandal cannot do us wrong. God will not let us fall. Let England know our willingness, for that our work is good. We hope to plan a nation where none before hath stood. It, it has for some time been implied that the Jamestown settlement was for the purpose of economic gain, whereas the Massachusetts colony was founded for the glory of God. Well, Neither one uh, is completely true. There were economic motives in Massachusetts, just as there were spiritual motives in the Virginia colony. Uh, but what has not been emphasized, at least as I see it uh, enough, is the biblical motivation of the men and women in Jamestown. Dr. Thomas Hall, in his book, The Religious Background of American Culture, makes this statement. He says, substantially, the same motives back both Virginia and Massachusetts. And another modern historian, Carl Breidenbaugh, says that the men who established and managed the London Company were, to be sure, conforming Anglicans. But nothing is more evident in their writings than the strong Puritan bent. So, again, you get to this, uh, this uh, hopefully, refining your understanding of Puritan once again. Though Virginia could not be described as Puritan politically, that would not be so. See, they were, they, if you had called them Puritans, they would, have re they would have rejected the title, because they would have understood that as a political term. They were not that, but they were theologically, as far as holding to the, what we call the Reformed faith or Calvinism, they held to it very dearly. And as a result of that, the Church of England, as it was in Virginia, and in fact as it was in the early years of this country, was not of that highly Anglo-Roman type found in England, but was distinctly biased toward Reformation convictions. Ernest Christ Thompson, a historian of this century, has stated that all the ministers brought to the colony before 1624 under the auspices of the Virginia Company were apparently Puritan in their sympathies. 
And so you have, and there, there, uh, I, I, I could tell you some stories about some of the men who came over here who were actually Anglicans, but who's like one of the men who came over was a very famous guy and preached. His uncle was William Gooch, one of the great Puritan uh, preachers in uh, in England, and he wrote back and forth. But he himself was an Anglican. Now, you see, this state of the Episcopal Church in Virginia and elsewhere has often been blamed on the fact there was no American bishop appointed. In reality, the Protestantized state of the church in Virginia was more due to the conviction of the ministers and the population in general, and the leadership in particular. They had been reared under puritanical theology and morals, and they were not willing. Uh, they Not only were they willing, but they were eager to submit to the moral regulations that have been traditionally thought to be exclusively the province of the um, New England Puritans. And this is reflected in the um, laws that were adopted in the Virginia colony. The first code for the colony was entitled the Articles, Laws, and Order, Divine, Politic, and Martial for the Colony of Virginia, 1610. It lays down the fact, and, and when you read it, it sounds very, very similar to the, to the things that you would find in Massachusetts later on. Uh, for example, it enjoins daily worship in these words, Since we owe our highest and supreme duty, our greatest and all our allegiance to him from whom all power and authority is derived, and flows as from the first and only fountain, and being a special soldiers impressed in this sacred cause, we must alone expect our success from him who is only the blesser of all good attempts, the King of Kings, the Commander of Commanders, and Lord of Hosts. And the governor speaking says, I do strictly command and charge all captains and officers to have a care that the Almighty God be daily and duly served, and that they call upon their people to hear sermons, as that also they may diligently, uh, they may diligently frequent morning and evening prayer themselves, by their, and by their own example in daily life and duties therein, encourage others thereunto, and that such as shall often and willfully absent themselves be duly punished according to the martial law in that case provided. So you see, uh, it, uh, that sounds a great deal like what you've heard about the New England Puritans, and it is it is indeed a lot like them. They, th- this, these laws of Virginia go on to forbid impious speech and blasphemy. Uh, they require public worship. They provide for the punishment of sodomy and adultery and fornication. They protect both the Indians and ministers from mistreatment, and I say, hear, hear, you know, to that. Um, Great, wise provision that. There's Puritan as one would find anywhere in New England. Well, in eight, by eight years, uh, by, uh, by 1618, the Jamestown settlement had turned from a disaster into a roaring success. They had changed the location of the town, of course, and there were a number of other things that happened. They, uh, the planting of tobacco uh, was instituted, the, which gave them a cash crop. The institution of private property was very important so that no one uh, they rejected socialism. No one lived off the diligence of others. The institution of common law, abolishing arbitrary rule, was very important. The in, and the introduction of women so that there could be families was essential to the whole. So it's a great story. I don't want to go uh, any longer into that, but it's a great story about what happened there and, and John Smith Smith and Rolfe and all the others and, and uh, Rebecca Rolfe, who is called Pocahontas. Well. Uh, the Plymouth Pilgrims came to this country, um, or started out on November 11th, 1620. They were the second major group of Puritans to come. They landed on Cape Cod in New England and founded the colony of Plymouth. This group of 102 men, women, and children had been 
the, a portion of the congregation that had left England earlier and gone to Leiden in, in the Netherlands under the direction of Pastor John Robert Robinson and, and ruling elder William Brewster. They were among five to six hundred Puritans who had fled England for Holland in 1608. These were called the separatists now. They, they wouldn't, if you had said, are you Puritans? They would have said no, because they had given up on reforming the Anglican Church. They said the only way, the only thing that could happen that's good is for the Anglican Church to go on. It is unreformable. So the only way they saw to remain faithful was to separate from it completely. But they were Puritan again in their theology, basically. Well, they, uh, they, uh, these took upon themselves the name of, pure, of pilgrims because they said, we are strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Now, their years in Holland were happy ones, but it wasn't long before they realized they were going to have to leave. It was a different culture. And they felt that they saved for they were neither for health nor purse nor language well accommodated. It was a different language, a different culture. And they were concerned primarily about their children growing up in that culture and not retaining some of the very important things that they felt were important for their children. And so they felt that they needed to leave. Now, they uh, obtained a charter, but their charter was specifically for Virginia. So once again, here's a uh, ship going off course. And when they landed and realized we're not in Virginia, uh, too cold up here. Uh, so they they realized that they, they had to draw up some form of government. They they drew up a compact forming a civil body politic. William Brewster, William Bradford, Miles Standish, and the other leaders drew up the Mayflower Compact, which all the adult men on the ship signed. Now, there's a there's a, of course that's a great uh, it's wonderful to read and all that. But what is significant about that is it shows how these people were ingrained in self rule. They didn't all of a sudden sit there and say, oh, no, what do we do? Oh, oh, somebody call the king. Oh, oh, oh. You know, they, they didn't panic at all. They go, well, okay, well, what we'll do is make our compact. We'll, we'll form a civil body politic so that we can have the rule of law. And these things were ingrained in, in these people so that they didn't fall apart if they didn't, if they found themselves in a wilderness, like I'm afraid some of us might if we were in a similar situation. Well, I, I won't, again, I won't go over all the remarkable providences that surrounded the first year of the Plymouth Settlement, but suffice to say that the Plymouth Settlement set the tone of the views of government and freedom that are called the New England Way, and that would have a great many consequences later on for the country. Now, the third group of Puritans to come to this country were the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. On September 6, 1628, a third group of earnest Puritans arrived on board the ship Abigail. The party, a party of about 40 people, had sailed from Weymouth, England on June the 20th, and they arrived at Nonkeg, or Salem. And again, this group came for the purpose of furthering God's kingdom. The first governor, John Winthrop, recorded their reasons for coming to the New World, and he said, he listed five. He said, the first one is the evangelization of the world. To carry the gospel, he said, into those parts of the world and to help on the coming of the fullness of the Gentiles and to raise a bulwark against the kingdom of Antichrist, which the Jesuits labor to rear up in those parts. So they are very concerned, you see, to counteract what they feared was an influence of papal Catholicism. They wanted to oppose that, and they wanted to have the true Catholic gospel going forth in this country. 
Secondly, he said the present judgment on the Church of England and on Europe in general, he says all the other churches in Europe are brought into desolation, and who knows but that the God, but that God hath provided this place to be a refuge for many whom he means to save out of the general calamity. And then thirdly, he said the spiritual condition of England was a reason, and the peculiar corruption of the schools and colleges. They were very concerned about the training of their children, but he says the fountains of learning and religion are so corrupted as most children are perverted, corrupted, and utterly overthrown by the multitude of evil examples and the licentious government of those seminaries where men strain at gnats and swallow camels. Now, here's, here's, a, here's, a, uh, here's an example of people, because they had terrible schools, they couldn't trust any of the schools to train their children in a consistently biblical way, they come over to a wilderness. And we have people who just complain about the school across the street and won't even bother to take their children out of it, much less, you know, go to Mars or something and start a colony, which would be almost the equivalent. You see. Well, fourthly, he said, the whole earth is the Lord's, and he should receive glory from every part of it, including what they understood, this vast continent that was, that was full of, of darkness because of unbelief. And fifthly, he said, the fact that there's so many godly who had approved of the enterprise and taken an interest in it. And again, they had taken counsel, and many of the faithful had said, this seems like a good and wise thing to the glory of God. So he said, those things convinced us to come, and come they did. There were many trials, as you know, scarcity of provisions, the fear of Indians and disease. But they were again upheld by the confidence that God desired a city on the hill from which the gospel in its purity might shine forth. These Initial efforts set the tone and laid a foundation for one of the greatest mass movements or mass migrations in the history of the world. So now let's think now of the three great migrations that came in the 17th and 18th century. There were three that began in 1629 and extended through 1775 that shaped the character and nature of this country. The first was a Puritan migration. The Great Puritan Migration officially began in 1629, and it was without precedent in the history of English colonization, and of course of English colonization in this country as well. In the 11-year period from 1629 to 1640, 80,000 Puritan men, women, and children left England for some place. 21,000 of those people came to these shores. It's an amazing exodus. This period co coincides with what, it, with what has been called the 11-year tyranny of Charles I. It was the period when Charles sought to rule England without a parliament and, in cahoots with Archbishop William Loud, purged the Anglican Church of all the Puritans. And so what happened, of course, you see, the Puritans were being forced out of England. It was a period of great economic distress and disease in England. John Winthrop noted it seemed as if England had grown weary of her inhabitants and was, as it were, vomiting them out all over the world. And so uh, there were, again, many reasons which motivated this migration, but chief among them was the desire to have to serve the Lord according to his ordinances, as Cotton Mather would later say. Thousands came over with the dream of founding what, in their mind, was a new Israel, a, a land that would be faithful to God, unlike the old Israel who had been destroyed for their unbelief. They desired to be a light to all the nations and a model for mankind. 
And whenever they explained their motives, if someone were to ask them, as many did, what, why, why are you doing this? was often the only thing they mentioned. It was so dominant in their thinking. They would not have disagreed with John Winthrop's declaration. He said, we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are, among, are upon us. We shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. Well, the other major motive was a concern for their own spiritual condition and that of their children. That always uh, came into play. And so to them, the physical dangers of crossing the ocean and settling in a, in a new land, which was basically a wilderness, outweighed the, uh, the spiritual was, uh, uh, they were outweighed by the spiritual dangers of remaining in England. So you had, in other words, if you stay in England, you've got these dangers of immorality and ungodliness and uh, uh, unbiblical teaching and all the rest. Now, if you go, you're facing an incredibly dangerous voyage, and you're going to get over there and probably get eaten by Indians when you get over there. And it's going to be a terrible, I mean, so it looked like, boy, hmm, <laughs> for us, we just twiddle our thumbs for a decade, you know, trying to figure that one out. Well, they said, well, given the two choices, it's easy to make the choice. Clearly, it is better to die in an effort to glorify God than it is to live and perhaps see your whole your own life and the lives of your children corrupted by the immorality around you. And so Lucy Downing, for example, wrote to her brother who was already in New England. She was in England at the time, ready to leave. It was on the eve of her family's departure. And she said this, if we see God withdrawing his ordinances from us here and enlarging his presence to you there, I should then hope for comfort in the hazards of the sea with our little ones shrieking about us. In such a case, I should more willingly venture my children's bodies and my own for them than their souls. Others mention the simple desire to serve God freely apart from temptation uh, and the opportunity to follow their own callings without increased interference from the government. But underlying all of this was, was the desire to honor the Lord without harassment from ungodly tyranny. Now, here is the fact that you have to keep in mind. The vast majority of those who came to New England in this period were from the same part of England. East, the eastern counties of East Anglia, eastern Lincolnshire, and uh, Cambridge, they, came not, they not only shared a common theological commitment, um, but a... a uh, but this common theology had formed a common political outlook. Many of the uprisings that were that were alluded to by George in his in his lecture against the arbitrary policies of of the king in England and and all of that originated in these colonies from the 14th century on. Jack Straw's rising in Suffolk, Wat Tyler's rebellion, John Ball's insurrection in Kent, all these peasant rebellions of 1381, Robert. Kett's Rebellion in 1549 in Norfolk all started in this area. In the latter, the leader sat under an oak tree uh, called the Tree of Reformation, and he presided over the trials of the tyrannical gentry as they were brought, they were paraded up, and they had these trials under the Tree of Reformation, and that was in 1549. Not surprisingly, this area was a major center of resistance to Charles I in 1625. The Protestant Reformation flourished more in this region of England than any other part. Over 80% of the martyrs under Bloody Mary came from this region of England, these counties. And during the reign of Elizabeth I, three-fourths of the Puritan ministers came from these counties, these same people. These are the people who came to New England. 
Archbishop William Loud once complained that East Anglia was the throbbing heart of heresy in England. It was where all the Puritans were. And thus those who came to New England were not naive like like naive evangelicals out on a Christian retreat. (laughs) Uh, Oh, this will be fun, won't it? Special. (sighs) These were not naive, you know, light-headed Christians that uh, thought they were going to have a good time. They understood the world is a battleground. And liberty cannot be taken for granted. And the only guarantee of liberty is the truth of the Reformed religion. If you don't have that, you cannot sustain liberty anywhere. And they understood this. And so they came over ready for battle. Now, remember that as we talk about the next two groups. The second major migration occurred in 1642 to 1676 with the departure of the royalist elite and a large number of commoners who were supporters of Charles I. These were the so-called Cavaliers. With very few exceptions, those who came in this migration had served under the English uh, in the English Civil War as military officers and soldiers in the Royalist forces. In other words, they're fighting for the king. They were called the Cavaliers. They settled mostly in Virginia. Many of them came during the 1650s, when Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans had dominated England. It was, it's been estimated that in the 20-year period from 1645 to 1665, between 40 and 50,000 came to this country from England. The vast majority of these people were from low rank. Uh, many of them, most of them came over as indentured servants. They had a horrible passage and all that. Uh, in, uh, that's another story. Uh, some people think, well, you know, the slaves that were brought from Africa had a had a horrible passage. Well, sure they did. Indentured servants had worse. And you say, why? Well, think about it. The shipmaster didn't get his money for the slaves of Africa until he got over to this until they got over to these shores. So there was a there was an incentive to care for them that was not present with the indentured servants. He got his money as soon as they boarded the ship. So he had his money. So the so many times the conditions of indentured servants were horrifying beyond what African slaves ever had to endure. It was far worse for many of them who came over. Well, many of these people then, they uh, they, they were all more rural than the Puritans of Massachusetts, that is, in their backgrounds, but they were just as devoted. John Dunn was one of these who called himself, he didn't come to the country, he called himself an adventurer. He said, but if not to Virginia, then for, for, for Virginia. And he preached a sermon to those who were departing to Virginia. And he told them, he said, your principal aim is not gain nor glory, but to gain souls for the glory of God. And most who came would have agreed with that statement. Their vision was not identical to that of the New Englanders, but they all desired the freedom to live and pursue their callings to the glory of God. The vast majority of those who came to America in this migration came from the south of England, centering around the counties of Wessex. Wiltshire, uh, Dorset, Somerset, Gloucestershire, uh, West Sussex, Surrey, those counties in the southern part of England. They had some uh, of the distinctive traits of those counties. These people were traditionally loyalists stretching back into the 13th century. You see, it's, it's interesting how these, how these groups of people congregated together. They were there and they had certain basic characteristics. The people who were Puritans 
had a history of opposition to the king. These people had a history from the 13th century on, at least, of strong loyalty to the king. And they felt strong attachment to England. They were hostile to change, profoundly conservative. Words like innovation and novelty and modern were used as pejorative terms. Cuss words. Uh, these Virginians viewed themselves, at least through the early 18th century, as Englishmen apart from England. That's the way they spoke of themselves. Cultural exiles in a foreign land is the way they viewed themselves. But devoted to king and country. Now, in spite of this, those who came to Virginia had strong attachments to liberty. Now, that sounds, again, to us as a contradiction. How could you be devoted to the king and, and then have real strong feelings about liberty? I mean, it's a sounds like a contradiction. Well, you see, they understood that there was no contradiction between their loyalty to the king and their insistence upon the ancient rights of Englishmen. Um, they understood that the king, under God, has a very limited role, and his role is primarily limited to, the, to protecting the liberty of his people. And so they really didn't have that, that fear. They just expected the king to perform that role. If he didn't, they would have problems. One visitor from England to Virginia described the people in this way. He said, they are haughty and jealous of their liberties, impatient of restraint, and can scarcely bear the thought of being controlled by any superior power. In other words, they expected the king to respect and protect their liberties and felt that these liberties were more secure. Now, you understand what I mean by that. They understood that men are not created equal. That is, men are not equally gifted or equally called. They are obviously all created in, after the image of God. They obviously all will stand before God. They're all equally fallen in sin, but they're not equal in any other way. And they recognize these obvious things that all of us know, but now in these days are afraid to say. One, one of the uh, famous Virginians was John Randolph of Roanoke. He once summarized his views. He said, someone asked him, well, Mr. Randolph, what is your creed? He said, my creed is this. I'm an aristocrat. I love liberty. I hate equality. And they understood that you can't have liberty if you love equality. That's a lesson we are not yet learning, but we will. If The more we continue to uh, exalt equality, we will see that you can't have it and liberty. You must choose. What do you want? Liberty or equality. You can't have both. So Virginians trained their children to be gentlemen. And a gentleman was one who governed himself under God and did his duty. Again, John Randolph summarized his view of life when he said this. He said, life is not so important as the duties of life. Living is not so important as living responsibly. Again, a lesson that we need to learn. Nothing was to be allowed then to interfere with men living freely and performing their duties to God and their fellows. So though they were loyalists and had this instinctive loyalty, remember George Washington is out of this out of this group. He toasted the king all the way to the summer of 1776. He, he was giving toast to the king. Again, hoping that the king would come to his senses and do what he ought to do under God and protect. They weren't opposed to, to fighting for their liberties, but they were highly devoted to, to order and uh, godly order. That's what they wanted. So there's the second group. Now, here's the third major group. And now we get back to these uh, wild and crazy people who talk loud and laugh loud and drink a lot and have fun. The Scotch-Irish. 
The third great migration of Protestants into this country was that of the Scotch-Irish, those thousands who came from northern Britain and Ireland, that could, and, and they continued throughout most of the 18th century up to the time of the War for Independence. It is estimated that anywhere between 300,000 and 500,000 came between the period of 1718 and 1775. Think of that. Between 300,000 and 500,000. Of course, you can't come up with a precise figure, but historians estimate somewhere between that uh, lower and upper ends there. Over two-thirds of that number came in one decade from 1675 to 16, I'm sorry, 1765 to 1775. The majority of these descended from the ancient Celts, and most of them ended up settling in the South, which you don't act surprised about. (laughs) All right. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah, that explains it. Well, those uh, those who came among the Scotch-Irish endured some of the worst treatment of any trans-oceanic travelers, again, including the slaves of West Africa, that any people have ever had. Some of the stories of these uh, uh, ocean crossings are simply horrifying. There's no other way to describe it. Greedy shipmasters, of course, again, getting paid on the front end, tried to pack as many people as they could, often packing over two-thirds more passengers than they could hold. And uh, so as a result, it was a very, very dangerous passage. They were trying to maximize their profits. They crammed their vessels with people. Uh, In 1767, for example, an epidemic broke out on board of an overcrowded immigrant vessel sailing from Belfast to South Carolina. The ship owner had packed 450 people into the hold of his ship. They were literally on top of each other. And, uh, and of course, an epidemic broke out where there was no place to go. Over a hundred of them died at sea. Another ship ran out of food in mid-passage. Forty-six of the passengers died, and the rest of them survived by eating the dead. It was a terrifying, nightmarish situation for many of these people. And yet, when you, if you were to ask them, would you do it again, they would have said, sure, gladly. We to do it again. The vast majority who came were faithful Christians. Many of them were Presbyterians, the Scotch and Irish. The second largest group were Anglicans, those from the borders, uh, borderlands of England and Scotland. These were the, uh, there was a deep interest in the Reformed religion, in understanding Reformation and having true Reformation, and a deep hostility to the established church and the tyrannical English government. The chief motive for this migration was escaping tyrannical treatment, which most of them had received at the hands of the English government, and the desire to be free from these tyrannical laws and regulations and licenses and policies. These people came from a long line of forebears who had opposed tyranny and fought for freedom. Since the 13th century up to 1745, 500 years, the border region of Scotland had not enjoyed 50 consecutive years of peace. Every generation for 500 years had been in conflict with England. And all of these people who came, came out of that context. So they come over here with an indelible memory of of, of oppression by the English, which they couldn't forget. So when they get over here, what happens? Hmm. It starts looking awfully familiar to them. These people became the backbone of the of the back country, what was called the back country. They settled primarily in western Pennsylvania on down through the south 
the southern states of North and South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, the western part of Virginia, down on the Gulf Coast, that whole area. They became ferocious defenders of liberty. And they came from a people who'd been willing to fight for it for over 500 years. And even longer, when you go back to many of these people, of course, are direct descendants of the, of the Celts. And so that, that takes you back another thousand years. So you have, we can't think in this, in this way as Americans. We just don't think in long terms. You know, like I said last night, anything, uh, anything before Elvis is an antique, you know, let's go antique shopping. Uh, a blob lamp. Now there's a nice antique. Um, <laughs> honestly, this girl said, Oh, I got an antique. I said, What'd you get? A blob lamp. I said, A blob lamp is not an antique. Man, these people <laughs> just live to insult you, don't they? Uh, anyway, here are these people who had 15, some of the 1500 years of what they would have identified as English oppression, Anglo-Saxon oppression. 1,500 years of this, and a very fresh memory for 500 years of what it meant for these tyrannical English to try to govern your life in every way possible and not allow you to have your own traditions and your own culture and worship God, like the Bible said. It just was irritating. And so they came to this country, and you can see already, I hope, the consequences of this. These Protestant migrations shaped this country. The majority of the early settlers were reformed in their theological commitments. They were Puritans theologically, though they wouldn't have taken that title. Only the New Englanders would have gladly accepted that title. The rest of them would not, and they might have fought you if you'd called them that. But what I'm speaking of here is their theological commitment. Sidney Alstrom, uh, uh, American historian, has said Puritanism provided the moral and religious background of fully 75% of the people who declared their independence in 1776. And then he goes on to say that if the influence of the Reformation is considered among the immigrants from the other parts of Europe, well, what else did we have? We had the Dutch coming, but they also had a reform background. We had the French Huguenots. What were they? Well, they were the Calvinists who had been persecuted by the Roman Catholics. And so you have others. He said when you include these other groups, 85 to 90 percent would not be an overestimation. Imagine that now. In 1776, the people who come together and decide that we're going to stand up against Great Britain, 85 to 90 percent of them are reformed in their convictions. Protestant, historic Christians. Lorraine Bettner has pointed out, it is estimated that of the 3 million Americans at the time of the American Revolution, 900,000 were of Scotch or Scotch-Irish origin, 600,000 were Puritan English, 400,000 were German or Dutch Reformed, and in addition to this, you had the Episcopalians in Virginia, of course, who had a Calvinistic confession, and many French Huguenots who had come over into the Western world. Many of the French also got into South Carolina and into the South and all the rest. Now, this common faith, you wonder, well, wait a minute, some of these people were fighting each other over in England. How did they live so peaceably over here? Well, again, they had this shared faith. They had a shared theology, by and large. They had come from vastly different cultural backgrounds, but they were able to exist together in peace. Now, that was the first and I think most important factor. The second factor was a limited and non-meddlesome central government that allowed them to live without being irritated by petty regulations and licensings and stipulations and 
authorizations and all kinds of zations that drive you nuts today. In spite of their vast differences culturally, they had a number of common characteristics. All or nearly all of them were Protestants. They had a, a great fear, therefore, and a loathing of Anglican bishops and what they call the hireling clergy. That is, these ungodly men who were put in positions, in, uh, in, into ecclesiastical positions. They had no, uh, many of them were not even Christians. They had no heart for the glory of God at all. Now, whether you think of the Puritans or the Separatists or the Cavaliers or the Scotch-Irish, this was a common, common conviction. Even among the Anglicans. None of them had any sympathy for the domineering Church of England and fiercely opposed its imposition in this country by means of bishops. That became such a hot issue. It was indeed, uh, Carl Breidenbaugh, in fact, suggests that was one, that was the chief motivation for the War of Independence. Now, uh, it, it was certainly one of the more important motivations. What we don't hear about very often, though, the threat of Anglican bishops being appointed in this country terrified everybody throughout this country. They didn't want it at all. It was a much stronger motivation, uh, underlying motivation for the War of Independence than any of us, I think, have really realized. Secondly, all of these people had a desire to see Christ honored. Not all, by any means, were faithful Christians. Obviously, you could find, your, you know, any number of unbelievers among the crowds that came. But the vast majority were sincere believers who more or less purely followed the Scriptures or sought to follow the Scriptures in their lives and conduct. And, of course, remember what happened in the early 1700s, in the middle 1700s, the Great Awakening, which was a revival of the, uh, in, in many ways, of the true faith, though it did have a number of problems connected with it, which would have ramifications in the later centuries. But there again, many people were converted during that time. And then thirdly, all of these people had a fear and abhorrence of infringements upon God-given liberty. All of them viewed their ancient liberties of British citizens with great reverence and prized their heritage of freedom. Most of those who came had a long history of conflict with Imperial England and Imperial English tyranny and came to this country to escape it. The memories of these conflicts stayed with them in this in this country. The Puritans retained the memories of the tyrannies of Charles I. The Anglicans had fled from some of the unwise oppressions, perhaps, of the Puritan party and thus longed for ordered liberty under a faithful king. The Scotch-Irish were fresh from border wars for over 500 years and over 500 years of struggle with the imperial English government. And they were perhaps the most sensitive to unwarranted infringements upon their freedoms than any of the others. And so what happens later in the 18th century, when it becomes apparent that England was being governed by an unreasonable elite who would not honor the ancient liberties of Americans or Englishmen that they so cherished, all of those who were so different in their own ways united in their common opposition to this threat that they thought they were all free from by coming to this country. England in the late uh, 18th century was dominated by a small ruling class which departed from the old folkways of British culture. They even adopted a new pronunciation and dialect. What very often we call the English accent was invented during this time. They wanted to speak differently from the commoners, and so they started saying some of the funny pronunciations you hear today from those people. They used to talk like me. <laughs> well, they did. I mean, uh, sorry again, uh, not to boast, but here it is. Um, they say things like, ain't you going to be over there in a minute? Now you say, no, that's, well, that's kind of Sussex, you see. Get into Sussex and you hear that kind of accent. They used to be... Um, 
that's the way the, the, the modern English accent was not there. This was kind of invented during this time when these elites wanted to distinguish themselves from the commoners, so they started talking differently. And see, the Americans who identified in very many ways, when they would go visit, they would think, what is going on here? Why are you talking like that? You sound ridiculous. And they couldn't even, they realized things were changing in England. Many new institutions were formed which dominated the life of England uh, and had never been in England before, particularly the new relationship between the king and parliament that had not existed before 1689. England sought to bring the American colonies in line with these new ideas, and they found resistance at every sign. They passed stamp taxes on everything, on university papers to restrict growth of the professions. A duty of 10 pounds was placed on papers necessary for admission to the practice of law. And you see, we think Stamp Act. We think, yeah, they'll tell you that you put on your letters. And they, why would they be upset about having to put stamps on their letters? And that's what we think. Well, that wasn't it. It was a way of controlling. And, the, and you had to have a stamp on every official document. So what they would do is place different values depending on what they wanted, how much they want, how much control they wanted. So if they didn't want a lot of lawyers, it would cost you a lot to get a stamp for a law degree. You see. <laughs> Not a bad, now, now come to think of it, <laughs> that's not so bad. Okay, well, anyway, they would do that to try to restrict the professions and all the rest, and, and, and that really, truly aggravated the people here. They, have, they, they uh, took away the, law, the courts with, with juries, which had been something that had been established at the Magna Carta, and even before the, the, the idea of being judged and having your having your case presented and being judged by your by a jury of peers very important to this to the people of this country well that was abolished and they put in vice admiralty courts that would be you would get a hearing before a military official of the crown and of course it turned out to be kangaroo courts rather than vice admiralty courts they they forbade the popular election of governors which had been done in most of the colonies up through the mid 18th century now they start appointing governors well all of these things together this was this new attitude so here, the loyal the guys that were really up to this time defending the king, now they say, well, wait a minute, what does he do? All this changes now. So Parliament is acting like God, trying to control every area of life. Well, we they can't do it. So they started making appeals to the king to back off and go come to his senses. Go out and take a deep breath somewhere, you know, get you some fresh air, climb a mountain, do something. You're nuts. This is crazy. Well, you see, these threats to freedom united the people in this country, and they forgot their private differences and fought their common foe. Now, here was here's a multicultural situation in a way, and it was never a problem because of two very important things. These things enabled them to live together peaceably. Remember, a common faith, orthodox historic Christianity, which dominated by and large, and a highly decentralized government a confederacy where every state and section could be self-governing and follow out its peculiar ways without unnecessary interference and efforts to force conformity. Those things were done, and we were able to live peaceably. In the 19th century, we lost both of those things in this country. After the War of Independence, the regional and cultural differences that were present would provoke another conflict. The New Englanders departed from the faith the faith of their fathers, and yet they retained this desire to have the world dominated. It wasn't a gospel desire. It was rather this stifling, self-righteous, Unitarian 
pharisaical desire which would seek to force conformity upon all regions of the country and make everybody after the image of New England by means of a centralized state and a powerful state. Well, this angered the Cavaliers and the Scotch-Irish in the South who didn't want any interference from anybody and especially from those people in New England that they always had known were weird. Anybody who eats boiled food <laughs> instead of fried has got something's wrong. So we always had this mistrust of those people. And then they start being busybodies, and that does it. You know, you can put up with a lot of things. They can eat the weird food and all that, but when they start trying to make us eat it, that's it. So the Virginians would be forced to make a stand. And they did so once again, fearing the unrighteous zeal of these new Puritans that they saw living up in New England. The two factors that held our country together were lost. The faith at least in the New England part of the country, was departed from. And there, with their victories and more and more radical movements, they began to consolidate a very powerful, unconstitutional, unrestrained central government that could then coerce the other parts of the country into their own, to do their own will. The war that occurred in 1861, you see, was in many ways a continuation of the old conflict that had occurred way back, long time ago. The secularization of the Puritans in New England against the Celts and the, and the Cavaliers of the South. Once again, honor was at stake. Once again, families were called forth. Once again, the old Celtic war yell resounded on the fields of battle. But this time the Celts lost. And we have not yet recovered from that defeat. Our century has been one of increasing darkness and it has been a sad, sad time. But look at this. This is the way God works, isn't it? Very often, he lets things get so bad that you finally end up saying, well, you know, there's nothing left to do but just pray. <laughs> wow. Oh, there's an idea. Pray. Hey. Only appeal to the Almighty, Eternal God, to do something. And that's a, that's a, let's do that. <laughs> and so people begin to pray. And, and as a result, I think God has begun to revive a work once again. And I believe that you are part of it. So we, we, we're we seeing, it seems, a return to the old faith. And if we see a return to the old faith, guess what else we're going to see? We're going to see people again begin to understand the sovereignty of God and the Lordship of Christ. And what's going to happen? Politics will be put back in its place. And government will go back to that very limited and Essential, but really a background role of keeping the peace and letting us live lawfully with joy and gladness and follow out our traditions and get to the important things like planting gardens and sitting on the front porch and telling stories and loving your wife and hearing the gospel preached and singing psalms and enjoying a, a long Sunday dinner with your friends. Those are the important things. And when we get back to the real faith, we'll begin to see this happen again because people will again, will again begin to say, hey, wait, the magistrate's just a minister of Christ. He's not a legislature. He's not a legislator. He doesn't invent laws. He just applies and makes sure everybody behaves and uh, doesn't uh, kill one another and those kind of things. He gives us an environment where righteousness and the important things can flourish. 
And we'll understand again the covenant of God. The covenant is so important because there you have both unity and diversity. Unity with diversity. So that we will see sanctified culture, sanctified cultural differences. And once again, we'll have an interesting country. Rather than what happens now, I guarantee you, if I could put you on a plane and not tell you where you're going, and when you got there, blindfold, you take you off and put you in a mall. Doesn't matter what they are, you know, what, what they're called. And, and pull the blindfold off and said, okay, let's take a stroll down the mall. You tell me where you are. You couldn't do it. I could almost take you to certain streets in every city across the land, blind, do the same thing, blindfold you, un, take it off and say, hey, tell, tell me where you are. You say, well, there's my pizza hut and there's the taco casa and over there's a dog barn where we get those big old hot dogs. You know, that, uh, everything's the same. And this cursed, cursed television, now we're all going to start talking alike and that'll be the worst of all. Isn't that so? It is the worst thing. Please don't make your children talk like Tom Brokaw. Let them have an accent. I'm telling you, this is so aggravating to me that now I meet people in Alabama and they start telling me about how, how nice it is to have a man. What are you doing here? No, I don't mind people up in the other part of the country talking like that, but what in the world are you talking like that down here? <laughs> that just makes me mad. I don't know what it is. Why do we want to all talk alike? I like to hear. Uh, a, a guy from Maine talk. It, it's the funniest thing I ever heard, but I like it. <laughs> I like different food sometimes. <laughs> I like the fact that they don't do things the same way up in New England as we do in the South. That's nice. That's good. Sanctified differences. That's what we want. What are we what are we having now? Do you see what this so-called pluralism and respect for one another has given us? There's no respect, by the way. We're all becoming oatmeal, unsalted. It's disgusting to see what's happening. George's favorite food. <laughs> no. This is terrible. We need a return to the full orb gospel where we can see the sovereignty of God who is both one and many, who gives us this glorious unity but doesn't destroy the equally glorious diversity. That's what we want. And that's what we have to have again. Understand where we come from and we can get back there by God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, help us, we ask. We are very foolish and we very officious and we like to dominate others just as much as anybody. We know that's our trait, our tendency because of sin. But we beg that you will help us, help us all as individuals to love you, to love your word, to be suffused with the knowledge of your glorious grace and the greatness of salvation so that we will be overwhelmed with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we will be accused once again by the pagans. Hey, what they believe is too glad to be true. Oh, Lord, make it so, so that we can live truly. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us, we pray, 
so that we might live faithfully and glorify your name. For Jesus' sake, amen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more from Pastor Steve Wilkins on Canon Plus. Mm-hmm.